Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. He has been very threatening uh, beyond a normal statement. And as I said, they will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power, the likes of which this world has never seen before. Thank you. Fire and fury. That's what President Trump says about the response if North Korea continues with its belligerent statements and activity. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you here. The situation with North Korea is... Uh, is heating up rapidly, and we are at what is a a new phase in this standoff uh, with the most uh, intractable foreign policy nuclear threat um, since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Here we are, um, staring at a regime that is full of the most... uh, warlike and hyper-nationalist propaganda and in recent days has been responding to sanctions that even Russia and China are willing to come along for to try and change the behavior of this country and most notably to get it to denuclearize. That's what's that's what's really at stake here. We are trying to get North Korea to give up its nuclear program and its nuclear weapons. There are Reports out there right now, unconfirmed, but there are reports that North Korea already can both hit the U.S. mainland with a ballistic missile and can put a miniaturized nuclear device on that missile, right? This is what we're reading now in the newspapers. Whether true or not, people are clearly very concerned about the North Korean threat to the United States, never mind to its neighbors, where it already poses an extremely viable and uh, catastrophic threat. Uh, It doesn't have to have nukes or nuclear capability in order to hit uh, South Korea, Seoul. It doesn't have to be advanced beyond what we already know it has in order to fire missiles uh, hundreds of miles at its neighbors. And in and the reality is that it has now been put in a position where it's already uh, very embattled economy is going to be receiving greater pressure. Uh, It will lose its estimated a billion dollars of foreign currency, uh, uh, foreign currency transactions. It currently is estimated around three billion that it can make abroad. They're going to put a halt on coal shipments out of the country, mostly into China. China seems to be on board at some level here. And look, the Trump administration deserves some credit for what's gone on here. Uh, and you even had the 
Former NSA, former CIA director Mike Hayden say as much. 20. Frankly, the Obama administration, I think, deserves some fair criticism for their strategic patience, which was, frankly, paying this problem forward, uh, not solving it on their watch and passing it forward to the Trump administration. And the Trump team deserves some credit for getting these sanctions. They are very tough. They kept the Russians on side. They got the Chinese to agree to them as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, by the way, Hayden is a is a pretty strong and full-throated Trump critic. But here he is saying what should be obvious to everyone, which is that the Obama administration on foreign policy matters stretching from Syria to North Korea to Venezuela to you name it, thought that inaction and flowery rhetoric during the occasional speech was evidence of brilliance, when really it was just evidence of inaction. It was inertia. It was a lack of ideas and resolve dressed up as patience, dressed up as being deliberate and and thinking long and hard on all these issues. The problem with North Korea only got worse under Obama's time in office, and we did almost nothing for eight years to try and convince Kim Jong-un's regime that there was a better path and there was another option for them one that wouldn't result in the destruction of their uh, crime dynasty, which is what the Kim family is. Uh, we, We didn't come up with an alternative for them. We didn't force them to think that there was something else that they should pursue other than the continuation of nuclear, uh, nuclear program research and missile testing and hoping to get to a point where they can credibly say that they are able to nuke a major U.S. city. And at that point, we have to start thinking about what that means for our response. What does the world feel like when one of the, really the, craziest, most authoritarian, most hardline, and warlike government regime on planet Earth can hit the U.S. mainland with a nuclear missile? How does that change our calculations about our own security? And this is where you start to see a lot of people that are going on TV, and it is frustrating to watch because the standards right now for who gets to comment on national security feel particularly low in the cable news universe. I'm just I'm just being honest with you. I'm keeping it real. You've got all these all these folks going on TV saying, well, you know, North Korea, we're we're going to we're going to teach them. And, you know, we better be strong when it comes to North Korea. Okay, fine. What does that really mean? The Trump administration is pushing forward sanctions that will hopefully be meaningful. That's taking action. That's worthwhile. But tough talk on North Korea on TV, and I'm not saying the administration's doing it. I'm just seeing a lot of it from so-called analysts and pundits and all the rest of it. Uh, Tough talk on North Korea does not address the underlying problems here, which are that this is a regime that views the nuclear program as not just central to its survival, This is where there's, I think, often a misconception or a a, a lack of information for those who are trying to wax philosophical on North Korean intentions and capabilities. It's not just that it is necessary to protect them from outside threats. It's also a legitimacy issue. And in fact, this has some parallels to Iran's nuclear program, 
where our perception of this in the West tends to be that this is just what the crazy mullahs want so they can nuke Israel or threaten to nuke Israel and they can avoid regime change. And while all of that may be true, there's an additional layer of the mullahs in Tehran and across the country, the ruling class, the Guardian Council, the people in Iran who make real decisions about all this. They push the nuclear program as part of Iran's greatness. So it's a legitimacy issue for them. This is about pride. And in a place like North Korea, where pride takes a form of ultra hardline nationalism and a racial purity propaganda that is often overlooked in the West and in the rest of uh, the world. We don't usually hear about or think about how, you know, North Korea, we, we think of it as, as cartoonish and stupid and evil. Okay, fine. But there is greater nuance to the ideology in North Korea than most people, certainly that I see going on TV, understand. Yes, they promote themselves and, and they have these outside statements via their own state-controlled media that seem clownish to us, right? Oh, sure, they're going to bathe this all in a sea of fire. But internally, the propaganda in North Korea, and really all media is propaganda there, there's no non-state media, so we can just use those terms uh, synonymously. But the perception among a lot of uh, the North Koreans is that, yeah, Kim Jong-un is embattled, but has managed to punch back and punch back successfully. And his uh, father, Kim Jong-il, was even more successful at it. His father was able to get the West to make concessions. See, we keep making concessions to the regime in Pyongyang. They get stuff from us, and they pursue nukes and missiles anyway. And they get more stuff from us, and they pursue nukes and missiles anyway. So how hard, how big a leap is it really for the North Korean Ministry of Propaganda to tell the North Korean people that they make a mockery of the rest of the world? That, in fact, America bows to their will because we give them food aid, because we won't do anything about their continued, not just provocations, but crossing of lines. I mean, they've, whether it's, you know, shelling an island somewhere or kidnapping people and uh, engaging in uh, uh, cyber attacks or assassinations abroad or all kinds of support for terrorism and global insurgency. All that's happening. And, and what do we do? You know, we do the equivalent of telling them they're going to have even less money and less food. And that doesn't turn the people against the regime necessarily because you have to look at it from their perspective. And and with that in mind, I think that a lot of our assumptions right now about how this is going to turn out with North Korea are faulty. Not necessarily yours and mine, but a lot of the acting assumptions out there in the media. Oh, we'll turn up the pressure and then... North Korea will bow to reason and give up its nuclear program. Well, North Korea is increasingly economically cornered, but it's also closer than ever before to the trump card that it really wants, which is an intercontinental ballistic missile that is nuclear capable. And at that point, it can not just threaten the United States, but blackmail anyone in the region and really around the world that it wants to. And you have to ask the question, well... Will they do it? Would they fire? Would they fire first? Once you understand a bit more about the history 
not just of North Korea, but of the regime and the people who run that place. I think that's a question to which nobody right now has an answer, and that alone is scary enough. Nobody really knows what the future with this country holds. No one knows what the red lines truly are. No one knows what North Korea is willing to do as things get more dangerous for it, as the regime faces a crisis of legitimacy. You see, we turn up the pressure, we make it economically more miserable, and then we expect that the people in power will be reasonable and say, okay, fine, we want, we want them to allow greater economic activity, so we'll make some concessions. But all the while, they think that they are in an existential struggle with South Korea. They think that we want to eradicate them and destroy their regime, and in a sense, they are correct. We do want to destroy the regime. We do want it gone. And in their own internal propaganda, it should be noted that they believe that they won a great victory with the partition of the Korean Peninsula and that we had to bow to them. That's the way that it is seen there, and that we accepted defeat, and therefore we might be defeated again. You, you start to look at this from their perspective, and it is a scary world when this country has nuclear weapons that it can fire at the United States and or, or our allies. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the history and ideology of what's going on there and then the responses to it. And I should also just note before we go into the break, and we'll talk about this more on the other side, that this is a, this is a classic legacy of the Obama administration. This was all happening. This was all getting worse during eight years of Obama. Did you hear much about North Korea's program and the real threat that it posed? No, no, no. Remember, you know, there's going to be this pivot to Asia. If you're going to deal with a pivot to Asia, what's one, what's the first national security challenge that you have to address? It's North Korea. Did the Obama administration accomplish a single worthwhile policy initiative with regard to North Korea? The answer is no. Yeah, kept in place some of the old sanctions, some of the old plans. Maybe they tightened up the sanctions here or there. Accomplished nothing. Eight years accomplished nothing. And this is just, this is really the, the calling card of that administration, doing very little and patting itself on the back all along for being so brilliant and such geniuses. Whether it was wrecking Libya and leaving it as a failed state, doing nothing in Syria while that imploded, while ISIS became a global terrorist threat, while other countries in the region, including all the way out to Germany and Europe, had to deal with an enormous refugee crisis. Where was the leadership? On foreign policy matters, where was the where was the global stature of the previous White House? Oh yeah, we were told they were such geniuses; they were so well versed in all matters of foreign policy. And now we see that Trump has come in with his people, and whether you love Trump or not, they've got to clean up the mess. And this is a mess. And we heard so much about how Obama was dealt this tough hand with Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, Iraq was stabilized and Afghanistan when Obama took over was in the best place it had been in since the war in 2001 and yet Afghanistan is going south very rapidly ISIS had to be chased out of northern Iraq I mean the Obama administration on foreign policy is really a legacy of just abject failure and North Korea as we're seeing right now 
is one of the most irrefutable and obvious examples of that. And now Trump is here. He's commander-in-chief. He's got to figure it out, and he's doing some of the right things. But this is a very tough problem. It was a strong day for the United States. It was a strong day for the United Nations, and it was it was a gut punch to North Korea to let them know the international community's tired of it, and we're going to start fighting back. That's Nikki Haley, U.N. ambassador, and I think what she says is true. Economically, it will be a gut punch to North Korea, but how— Will North Korea respond? The Democratic People's Republic of North Korea. Isn't that um, among the most Orwellian of names imaginable? It's not democratic. It's not a people's republic. But nonetheless, there it is. Uh, oftentimes, the, the longer and, and uh, more uh, grandiose the name of a country, the less free and more problematic the government's going to be. Um, but here's the report. I mentioned it before. I wanted to tell you so we have some of the specifics, and then I'll go into my thoughts on where much of this may be uh, or some of this may be heading. Um, here's what the Washington Post reports. Uh, North Korea has successfully produced a miniaturized nuclear warhead that can fit inside its missiles, crossing a key threshold on the path to becoming a full-fledged nuclear power, uh, according to U.S. officials. In a confidential assessment, the new analysis completed last month by the Defense Intelligence Agency comes on the heels of another intelligence assessment that sharply raises the official estimate for the total number of bombs in the communist country's atomic arsenal. The U.S. calculated last month that up to 60 nuclear weapons are now controlled by North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Some independent experts believe the number of bombs is much smaller. The findings are likely to deepen concerns about an evolving North Korean military threat that appears to be advancing far more rapidly than many experts had predicted, end quote. There you have it in North Korea. That's what's going on right now. This is why people are so concerned. Whether I, I don't know if that reporting is true or not about what's in a, a DIA, reportedly in a DIA assessment, uh, but we do know that North Korea has been firing off missiles. We know that they have nukes, and we know that they are a, an ultra-nationalist and uh, deeply um, deeply racist, which people don't often think of. Yeah, they're xenophobic, but also they believe, and there's a whole book, and I actually have it here with me in the studio if any of you are looking for something to read on North Korea that'll give you, a, I think, a particular insight into it. There's a book called The Cleanest Race, How North Koreans See Themselves and Why It Matters by B.R. Myers, who's a— North Korea analyst at The Atlantic, and he talks about how they, in much of their propaganda, refer to themselves as the purest or cleanest race on earth, and also how in in Western totalitarianisms, which, by the way, is a much closer uh, approximation of what North Korea was Second World War fascist totalitarianism is really much closer to what North Korea is than a revolutionary communist state. Uh, and I'll get into some of those distinctions with you and, and why that matters to all of us. Because really it's about, do we have to worry about this, about this place run by a guy who's kind of nuts? Do we have to worry about them trying to nuke us? That's the question, right? Uh, do me a solid. If you are an iTunes user, whether you download the podcast there or not, uh, it would be great if you would click subscribe, obviously, to the podcast, but also so you'll have it whenever you want to listen to it. But also you can leave a quick review, even just something like, OMG, best podcast ever, or I love this podcast, so much cool information, sometimes Buck says funny stuff, whatever it is. 
uh, as long as you don't mind, please do uh, write me a review for the podcast of Buck Sexton with America Now. It will help uh, grow the show because that goes into the algorithms that determine whether people will see it as a podcast they should download. A little, uh, little inside baseball in the podcast world for all of you listening. Also, uh, the other subject matter that we will get into in the show, I know I've been just jumping right into North Korea right away, um, but we've got uh, the... New York Times climate change report that they say was leaked to it. Want to talk to you about that. Um, we've got Jake Tapper commenting on Trump TV and some of the uh, hypocrisy, I think, it worked there. Uh, a transgender kids camp. That's a, a that's something that's happening now. Um, and, and then the big story, which we will spend a, a good chunk of time on uh, later on in the show, and that is this viral memo from inside of Google dealing with Google's diversity procedures, but more than that, Google's ideology, which is just a leftist echo chamber, which I've known for a long time. I know people who work at Google, and if they're even vaguely conservative, they completely hide it. And they're just bombarded with all of this progressive dogma and orthodoxy, and it is vicious. I mean, you, you have to go along with it. There's no room for anyone to be like, hey, maybe I don't buy into this. Oh, no. And they take uh, all, of the, all of the isms, feminism, racism, postmodernism, all this stuff, and it informs their corporate policy and decision-making. It, it dictates it, really. And dictates is a good word because they act like petty dictators when it comes to what people are allowed to think and say in the workplace there. So, and I know this is where some of the some of the libertarians out there say, "Well, they can do whatever they want because it's a it's a, a private uh, private company." No, actually, that's not the way it works in this country right now. There's a lot of federal law and regulation about what you can and can't do in hiring questions you can and cannot ask, what is an acceptable percentage of different groups to be hired lest you run afoul of the authority. So, let's not uh, let's not pretend that we live in some free market society when it comes to employment. And so anybody who's going to complain about conservatives being fired from their job is being unprincipled. No. The point here is that, well, if you're going to regulate workplace viewpoints and make it a function of law, you can't have it so that conservatives are allowed to be discriminated against. You, you can't have all these other protected groups, but political ideology doesn't count. Okay. Um, but we'll we'll get there. And oh, there's it's such a rich topic. There's so much more. There's um, the realities of why are why are women? Let me ask you this provocative question. And I don't think it's provocative. You probably don't either. Maybe you do. Why aren't there more women who are excelling as engineers in the technology world? Basically, why aren't there more women in computer science? at these top technology companies, which are incredibly influential and among the most valuable, really the most valuable companies in the world now. Why aren't there more, not just in leadership roles, that's one part of this, but at the top echelon of engineering. And usually think of engineering, I don't know, some people think of engineer like toot, toot, like you're on a, you know, you're on a train, uh, but that's not the kind of engineering. Or they think of people who build bridges. When, I, when I'm saying engineering in the context of this discussion, I mean those who have you know, back-end website expertise, who understand coding, who understand that whole world of what goes on in your computer screen that, that I do not, I, I'll be the first to admit, I, I do not understand. So I don't even know enough about that to speak 
uh, with never mind authority. I, I don't even really necessarily even know what the terminology is once you start getting into back end stuff. I don't know what the terminology is, uh, but I do know that there isn't some giant scheme. There's not some plot underway in this country to keep women out of top computer science jobs. It's just a lie. It's like the and by the way, one of the reasons this guy wrote this thing is not just uh, this guy at Google who's now been fired for writing this 10 pages. He's a Ph.D. in uh, biology from Harvard, and he is he has been fired for making a very reasoned and thoroughly thought out and sourced argument about what it is that is resulting in fewer women. And I see I get so I'm very passionate about this topic. So I promise you we'll spend uh, some real time on the show getting into it, But because I want to finish our North Korea discussion. But let me just say this. This is the question. Why aren't there more women in those roles? Because there aren't many. Why are women underrepresented there? And I don't like the term underrepresented because that makes it seem like, well, does it have to be 50-50? But uh, why aren't there more? Here's, the, here's really the question. Why aren't there more women who are at the top, at the top level in engineering in the world of technology? That's that's really what the question is. Why are, are there are there biological factors? That's the next question. Oh, now you now now you done now you did it, Buck. You're gonna get yep. You ask that question and people start getting very tense. Well, we'll deal with the question in a rational, reasonable, evidence based, respectful but honest way because that's how we roll here in the Freedom Up. That's coming up later in the show. All right, back to uh, North Korea for a little bit here. So get excited about that Google discussion, because that's going to be a, a fulsome conversation here in the Freedom Hut. Uh, I, I mentioned this book to you, and I've got it here, The Cleanest Race, How North Koreans See Themselves and Why It Matters. And one of the parts of it that, I really, that really sticks out to me is when he talks about the misconceptions around North Korea. You know, people will refer to it, they'll say, oh, well, it's Stalinist. Yeah, sort of. There, there certainly are some parallels and some... Uh, some similarities, but its ideology is not really—it's different than that. Um, and, well, let, let me read you a, a couple of relevant passages here to give us a, a bit of a meat on the bones of this discussion about North Korean ideology. And again, why am I talking about North Korean ideology? Do you really care? If I sit here and explain Juche, self-reliance to you, does that really—by the way, North Koreans even have a tough time explaining Juche. It's really a, a, a throwaway—it's really just something that's a propaganda line— that is put out there and no one ever questions it, so no one really knows what it is. Uh, but it, I, I'm not trying to sit here and act like we're in you know North Korean ideology 101, but if, we're wanna, if we want to understand why Trump is taking the positions that he is on this and why he needs to uh, address this problem and why the Obama administration was derelict in its duty to deal with this for eight years, we have to get a sense as to what does the North Korean state, how does it see itself, how will it act, and would North Korea fire off a nuke at Hawaii? I mean, that's really what we're getting into. I mean, would North Korea decide to try and do a first strike on Honolulu or California or, or who knows where? We don't know. And when it gets to a place where we know that they can at least do it, we want to be darn sure we have an idea as to how realistic the possibility is of North Korea doing that. Is this a country that might try to nuke us? That's what we're really getting into here. That's why this matters. Okay. And what the, the answer to that question will guide, well, what do we do? What should Trump do? What should the American people be pushing members of Congress and this administration to do? Okay. Back to this, uh, this book, The Cleanest Race. 
Unfortunately, a lack of relevant expertise has never prevented observers from mischaracterizing North Korean ideology to the general public. They call the regime hardline communist or Stalinist. Despite its explicit racial theorizing, its strident acclamation of Koreans as the world's cleanest or purest race. They describe it as a Confucian patriarchy, despite its maternal authority figures, or as a country obsessed with self-reliance, though it has depended on outside aid for over 60 years. By far the most common mistake, however, has been the projection of Western or South Korean values and common sense onto the North Koreans. For example, having been bombed flat by the Americans in the 1950s, the DPRK, the Democratic People's Republic of North Korea, must be fearful for its security, ergo it must want the normalization of relations with Washington. These various fallacies have combined to make the West worry less about North Korea's nuclear program than about Iran's. The word Confucianism, people often say North Korea is Confucian in some way, makes us think of Singapore, Asian whiz kids, and respect for the elderly. How much trouble can a Confucian patriarchy be? Self-reliance doesn't sound too dangerous either. Communism has a much less benign ring to it, of course, but if there's one thing we remember from the Cold War is that it ended peacefully. For 15 years, the perception of a communist North Korea has sustained the U.S. government's hope that disarmament talks will work with Pyongyang as they did with Moscow. Only in 2009, after the Kim regime defied the United States by launching a ballistic missile and conducting its second underground nuclear test, did a consensus begin to emerge that negotiations were unlikely ever to work. Yet the assumption prevails that the worst Pyongyang would ever do is sell nuclear material or expertise to more dangerous foes in the Middle East. All the while, the military first regime has been invoking kamikaze slogans last used by Imperial Japan in the Pacific War. Saying that they're saying all this really crazy stuff. And we keep telling ourselves that, you know, they're not that crazy. It'll be fine. Well, why are we so sure? And being wrong on this one is not something that we can afford. We've got Michael Malice joining us now. He is an expert on North Korea, author of Dear Reader, the unauthorized autobiography of Kim Jong-il. He's also the host of You're Welcome. Michael, great to have you on. Thanks so much, Buck. So things seem to be legitimately heating up right now with North Korea. We've been reading about the missile tests and the nuclear program and the crazy threats for years, but we have seemed to reach something of a tipping point. This does seem to be getting closer to a place where uh, the international community, and most notably the United States, is saying, we actually have to do something about this guy. Yeah, this is a game of chicken where you have two cars driving at each other as fast as possible. And the issue is uh, President Trump is not someone who likes to back down from a fight, as we've seen during the campaign in his presidency. But North Korea isn't in a position really to back down from a fight either, because very often when these regimes back down, the people at the top, like Gaddafi, like Saddam Hussein, are personally killed. So this is uncharted territory, and it's a very dangerous brinksmanship. Now, tell us a bit about the, the leadership. What, what do we know about uh, Kim Jong-un versus his, his predecessors, because I think one of the primary places for debate, and you see this playing out on TV, and there's all these different pundits, some who 
I'm pretty sure couldn't find or name the capital of North yep. Korea, but they're still on TV talking about North Korea, talking yes. about, you know, what's going on with the nuclear program. They don't know anything about nuclear programs, but I digress. Yes. Uh, but a lot of this comes down to, well, is he a rational actor or not? Uh, what is your response to that? And, and with me throwing in there that that's a that's a simplification of a very complicated. It's not really a yes or no. It is a yes or no. It's abs- he's absolutely a rational actor. And I can prove it to you in this way. Uh, people who are crazy don't last long. It's very hard to maintain power for 70 years if you're not in touch with reality. Well, what but I mean by that is, Korea- is, is, is he ra- rational in the context of being the leader of North Korea is not rational in the American context? Well, it's rational in terms of his self-interest, and it's rational in terms of there are certain mechanisms that we can use that we know will work. And we also know that his behavior isn't random. It's not a-causal. He is behaving according to certain incentives and, and has a certain agenda of his own. And the reason I wrote, dear reader, because as you said, Buck, you watch people on TV. They know nothing about North Korea. They think it's another Soviet Union. They think it's another Iraq. It's like neither of those things. So it really behooves us to understand this country before we start opening our mouths and, and basically uh, just analogizing it to something it's not analogous to. So what should the folks at home, Michael, and we're speaking to Michael Malice, author of Dear Reader, the unauthorized autobiography of Kim Jong-il, what should they know so that they can have a, a better sense, a better context for what we're hearing, which is more or less crazy statement from North Korea's leader, and oh, by the way, not sure when, but at some point in the relatively near future, they will have miniaturized nuclear weapons that are possible to be put atop ICBMs, which can hit the mainland United States, which is a game changer for national security. What do people need to know other than, I mean, that's the top line headline we keep seeing. What else needs to go into this? It's even worse than that, because the reason Kim Jong-nam, the eldest son, who was recently assassinated in that airport, the reason he was passed over for the leadership position is that he wanted to denuclearize. And Kim Jong-il said, no, nuclear weapons are essential to maintaining North Korea as a state. He bragged that to fight the American eagle and the Chinese dragon, he had to turn North Korea into a hedgehog, by which he meant an animal with spines, missiles, pointing in every direction. So Kim Jong-un's promise to maintain and build on this nuclear program is what got him into this role. So it would basically be like President Trump saying, forget the wall, we're going to give amnesty to everyone. It would be absolutely impossible. That's how essential the nuclear program is to his leadership capabilities. Now, the program may be essential to his sense of the regime's uh, survival, which I, I think it is. And I think there's also recognition that as long as and internally speaking, it's very important for them to project that they are a nuclear power and they are growing. Uh, again, having the nuclear program is essential to Kim Jong-un's leadership. It was one of the reasons why his eldest brother, Kim Jong-nam, was passed over. Uh, Kim Jong-nam wanted to denuclearize. And Kim, Kim Jong-il said... I'm going to turn North Korea into a hedgehog, by which he meant an animal with spines, missiles, pointing in every direction. So it's absolutely essential for their leadership propaganda that they maintain that nuclear power. And what does that mean we should do now? Because people are getting uh, pretty worried about this as a national security problem, and I, I think understandably so. I mean, this is, this is a real concern. This isn't something that's being trumped up or, or hyped. This is a real concern, and this is an unprecedented concern. We have never, even during the Cold War, when we kind of had a nuclear stalemate with the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union, towards the end especially, was nowhere near as belligerent as North Korea. North Korea spent decades, for example, kidnapping Japanese citizens to force them to teach Japanese to their spies. They've had many incursions into South Korea. 
Uh, they kidnapped, uh, captured, excuse me, USS Pueblo in 1968, and they revel in the fact that they are pushing around America. In fact, in, in their propaganda, they say, we know how to treat America. If necessary, we'll slap her across the face. So this is a situation that we've never seen before. And obviously, when you're dealing with a nuclear power that is desperate to maintain its hold uh, on control of its citizenry, there are no good or even bad answers. This is going to take a lot of work, and it's going to take an international community working together. And we start to see that with the recent UN resolution, where even China joined forces. To, uh, right. China and Russia are on board now with this round of sanctions, which is is meaningful, even from people, according to people I know, who are pretty cynical about all this anti-North Korea options in the past. Absolutely, because China doesn't want a U.S. ally on their border. China doesn't want 25 million North Korean refugees, you know, crossing the Tumen River. And but China also wants to be a player on the world stage. All right, we so got Michael Malice, author of Dear Reader: The Unauthorized Autobiography of Kim Jong Il. Michael, thank you so much for joining, man. Come back soon. Thanks so much, Bob. We've got Todd in North Carolina on WPTI. Hey, Todd. I just pretty much want to talk about North Korea and basically that their China's their China's junkyard dog. I mean. They've they've been that way, what, since the end of the Korean War? I mean, everybody's afraid of crossing the Yalu. That's that's pretty much where Yeah, I mean, China wants—I mean, Todd, you're hitting on a key point, which is that China wants a buffer state, which is what North Korea provides it on the Korean Peninsula, between South Korea, which is a close U.S. ally and part of the— the uh, what we could, even though it's not a geographic term, it's really part of the uh, allied Western uh, Western countries, right? I mean, it's it's very close to the United States. It's it's close with uh, with Japan and Europe, and the Chinese don't want to see that go away. They don't want to see a unified Korean Peninsula with very close relations with the United States that is democratic and that is free and that is a uh, inherently then a destabilizing force on China's doorstep, connected to China, no less. So th- that's, you know, th- that's why we don't have entirely similar interests with uh, with uh, China when it comes to North Korea. In fact, we are at odds with China on some important issues of Korea. Um, a lot of a lot of people are, especially the Japanese. I mean, you're not hearing anything going on in, uh, about what they're doing in South China. The South China Sea, excuse me. You're not hearing anything about what they've done and what they're doing in Vietnam. I mean, they're the they're the perfect cover, and nobody's paying attention. Nobody's putting it out there. I mean, China. I mean, North Korea is a bad thing. You get in there, it's going to be a bad thing. They're plugged in. They have been for for decades. I mean, yeah, there's no way to end this problem. People that are saying we may have to take a, you know, we may have to take military action at some point in the future. I think that, well, hopefully anybody who's in a position to make that decision already understands that 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 would be horrific. I mean, it would be catastrophic. You you would have a lot of dead people and uh, on on both sides. Uh, You know, not not necessarily U.S. homeland deaths, but you would have South Korea would be in a really bad sh- would be in really bad shape and i believe that they'd probably just go after japan too they'd probably pull a pull a saddam and fire whatever they could at at japan just out of spite so that spirals out of control very quickly and and i think that's a a conflict that everybody well certainly everybody outside of north korea wants to avoid yeah i mean i mean there's a lot of hard feelings on the peninsula about 
Japan still. I mean, a lot of bad things happen, and North Korea ain't forgetting about it. Oh, I mean, yeah. Well, part but, of the propaganda. You know, I was going to move on to Todd Shieldsheim, and thank you for the call. I was going to move on to the climate change report that got leaked, and I will in just a second. I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on North Korea today, but just a, a couple of, of background notes on this that I think you may find interesting. Uh, that the Korea was an an appendage of China for a very for a very very long time, and and really Korean nationalism is largely a 20th century invention. Uh, certainly, Korea as independent nation states that exist to this day is literally a 20th century invention. Uh, but the Japanese took the Japanese became the colonial overlords. Of Korea, they seized Korea, and there were uh, efforts to kick out the Japanese. Uh, but interestingly enough, they were also, with the rise of Korean nationalism in the 20th century, you had some comparisons to uh, Imperial Japan. You had a sense that there were, uh, they in fact were mimicking, um, uh, mimicking the Japanese. Uh, nationalist and sort of ethnic superiority rhetoric, uh, and this was ha- this was happening in in Korea before the separation of Korea into North and South, uh, and you know uh, Mount Paekdu, uh, for example, which is re- reputed to be at least in some of the propaganda the birthplace of Kim Il Sun. Um, is in many ways similar to Mount Fuji, which is kind of the, you know, part of the original founding uh, myths, if if you will, of the Japanese people, right? M- Mount Fuji holds a very important place in, in Japanese uh, conceptions of the state and Japanese uh, history and and founding ideology, really. Um, and so Mount Paektu is an interesting comparison there, right? There, there are some other places, too, where there's crossover between the way the Japanese view themselves and the way the Koreans view themselves uh, as being this independent race that has no connection to China. I mean, in reality, actually, there are a lot of connections to China, and uh, and they are all... They all come from if if you trace it back far enough, and you know this will get you in trouble with some Korean and Japanese nationalists. But uh, if you trace it back far enough, you will see that they all come from the same uh, same origins. Um, don't say that though in polite company; that'll get you in trouble. Uh, and by the way, I mentioned before the uh, the usage of kamikaze rhetoric by North Korea. Uh, literally the same rhetoric that the Japanese Imperial Japan was using uh, back in the Second World War. Interestingly enough, kamikaze it, it means divine wind, and the kamikazes were uh, using the ideology of national or really Japanese ethnic and national resistance uh, in World War II. They were hearkening back to the effort to stop the Mongol invasion, and the original divine wind was the wrecking of a Mongol fleet that was on its way from mainland China to Japan to seize the island. And militarily speaking, probably could have, but there was a terrible storm that destroyed that Mongol invasion fleet, and so Japan was never conquered by those Mongol overlords uh, who had taken mainland China. And Anyway, uh, Mongol history perhaps for another day, but that's where, that's where the divine wind, that's where kamikaze comes from and... Uh, the North Koreans have borrowed some of the kamikaze rhetoric 
in their propaganda, and, and it should be noted that their external propaganda and their internal propaganda are not the same thing, um, and they increasingly view the success of South Korea as an existential threat because, uh, yeah, there's all these stories about the mythology of North Korea, and there's like a den of unicorns somewhere and all this other stuff, and it's kind of become a pop culture uh, joke series, right? Kim Jong-un and Kim Jong-il. Uh, but you've got to think about it from their context. First of all, Kim Il-sung, who's the original Kim in the dynasty, is uh, portrayed as being kind of heavyset. And Kim Jong-il, uh, you know, who we know from Team America, he's in Team America, World Police, uh, he was heavyset. His son is heavyset. That's, uh, you know, you get people that go on TV and go on radio and they say, oh, look at that, you know, look at that pudgy punk and all this stuff. Well, but there's a reason for it, actually, and it's because in the official propaganda of the state, because the uh, the country is viewed as being the children of the father, that being a little bit more portly is meant to be a visualization of how the Korean, or the North Korean dictator is a father figure to the whole country. And in fact, mother figures, as we mentioned, I mentioned earlier on the on the show, play a very large make him seem more affable, friendly, and paternal. It's like he drank uh, a fifth of bourbon and cuts his hair, you know, in the dark with his left hand or something. But th- that that doesn't really make much of a difference to our understanding of the country, right? And I think actually you see some ignorance on parade when people just do the like mocking all this stuff because. There are real-world implications for this. Uh, Just one more thing on North Korea. They have been saying for a long time—I mean, they're hyper-militaristic, and they they view it as they defeated the allied powers of the world, and that's what led to the partition. We think of it as we stopped them and we saved South Korea. They view it as we all tried to gang up on them, and they beat us, and that we had to cry uncle. We had to say, sorry, sorry, and that's why you have— you know, the, the dividing line um, between North and South Korea, the DMZ that exists right now. But they view it as we're still in a perpetual state of, of war, technically. And they think that South Korea, uh, the, the, only, the only problem that they have right now with their propaganda is that they had been saying for a long time that South Korea was this, uh, this desperate, terrible place— and in fact, South Korea is economically very prosperous, so that they don't really know how to handle that in the North Korean propaganda, because people are figuring this out, and they're they're finding out that okay, well, maybe they're evil, maybe they're bad, but also uh, they're richer than we are. Why is that? And given all the militarism that's going on in North Korea, there's a real possibility, I think, that you could see um, a what would seem like a uh, reactionary military response to this continued outside provocation by trying to settle this thing through force, i.e. reinvading or going after South Korea. Uh, So that's, anyway, I'm sorry, I'm speaking more about Korea than I meant to. Uh, Let's go into, right after this break, I promise you, we will get into the leaked climate change report, the New York Times also certainly should discuss, uh, if we can get to it today, if not, we'll do it tomorrow. The opioid uh, speech that President Trump gave and the opioid epidemic, which, as you know, here on the show, we've been talking about this for months. In fact, at the very origins of Buck Sexton with America Now, one of the I think one of the first months we were on air, we talked about this story because I've been seeing this tidal wave coming for a long time. And now it's finally really hit and people are aware of just how bad the opioid epidemic is. Uh, and, and then, uh, like I said, from this 
later on this hour, going into the third hour, we will certainly talk about this Google, quote, anti-diversity memo, which is incredibly interesting uh, back and forth. And I'll talk to you about that. All right. I've got a lot of show and not that much time, Um, but we will address the question when we come back here. Why are scientists so paranoid? If the science is on their side, why are climate scientists so paranoid about what this administration will do? And what are we to make of the fact that the administration never seems to do what the so-called scientists are so paranoid that they're going to do? From the beginning of this administration, they have uh, there have been people on the climate change side of the house, right? People that work for the EPA and uh, the you know different agencies that deal with this stuff. I don't know. Whatever, whoever, whoever touches in the climate change touches uh, on the climate change is- issue you've had this this fear and i would even say fear mongering that the trump administration would go to these great lengths to stymie to stifle and and so they've created a narrative without any facts because the administration hasn't suppressed any information that that hasn't happened you might re- you may recall that there were news stories oh that's right fake news about how websites, government websites that had climate change data had been scrubbed. You can go back, you see this, you can go Google it yourself, you're curious. But they weren't scrubbed. That's not true. It's just there was a new administration, and with a new administration, they do updates and changes to all of the various government websites. But this whole, before I even get into this report, which I will do with you in just a moment, there is this whole theory uh, that makes no sense, and that is that the the Trump administration will somehow be able to suppress the very data necessary for us to have a complete understanding of the the coming climate pandemic, the global threat that climate change poses to all of us. Oh, my gosh, we're all going to die. And I just I I do have disdain for this uh, this scaremongering and, and this completely. Uh, sanctimonious point of view that we hear from the climate change alarmist crowd because so they they think that I they think that I don't care if the planet ends and that everyone dies is that really or what am I am I bought off or or my favorite is that people that you know work for left-wing news sites what they have better reading comprehension than I do like I, I can't read the IPCC report and know that there's a lot of uncertainty in it because there is that was the intergovernmental panel on climate change report that I read in full, by the way. Uh, and, yeah, there's a lot of, well, we've got medium confidence about this and high confidence about that and medium confidence about this. And when a a report with dozens of different authors and, and hundreds of different reviewers has lots of like, well, we're not really sure about this, but we think kind of, I, I wouldn't take that to the bank. But more to the point I was trying to make, because, I mean, I could speak to you about this one issue for hours, but I know we don't have hours together on this. we got to do get into some other stuff. Uh, more to the point on this one, that there could be the suppression of this information and data in the modern age in which we live, where information can be just be posted online. Or, or where clearly some members of the government, whether it's the—this uh, th- is a, a study— from 13 different federal agencies uh, that somehow this would be, uh, that it would be possible to suppress this information or that the White House would want to um, just makes no sense. It's 13 federal agencies. There are scientists from them. 
that conclude that, quote, Americans are feeling the effects of climate change. It directly contradicts Trump uh, claims by President Trump and members of his cabinet who say the human contribution to climate change is uncertain and that the ability to predict the effects is limited. End quote. Well, of course, the ability to predict the effects is limited. Nobody can predict the future, and people who claim they can are misleading and usually just lying, but at a minimum misleading uh, when you're talking about an issue that is this complex. I mean, there is no certainty about what the climate will be in five years or in 20 years, certainly not in 100 years. And anyone who says otherwise is just living in a fantasy or they're trying to pull one, pull one over on you. Uh, but you'll notice the... The storyline here is that they had to force this information out there. This is a government report in draft form. They had to force it out there because, you know, Trump was going to suppress it. Uh, Nikki Haley, U.S. ambassador, she's getting a lot of play on the show today. She was asked about this, whether the Trump administration would have rejected this report. Here's what she said. Just because we pulled out of the Paris Accord doesn't mean we don't believe in climate protection. I think we're very aware that we need to do that. What we're saying is we're not going to sell out American businesses to do that. Will we embrace the re results of this report from 13 federal agencies? I haven't seen the report, but I don't see any reason why they wouldn't. I mean, I think a lot of this is we're not saying that climate change is not real. It is real. It's how do you have that balance between making sure you've got jobs and businesses moving and then also making sure you protect your climate. The answer's in the middle. I should note that they, they now realize that this is where the climate alarmists realize that this is where the debate is going to go, that the, there's a cost-benefit analysis. Sure, climate change, they, they won't just be able to, to hammer people with this. Do you believe in climate change? Because if you say no, you're an idiot. So now you can say, okay, yeah, I believe in climate change, but at what cost and, and what can we do about it? And that's a, a discussion that requires a lot more thought and a lot more ability to work through the facts than just the social signaling right of oh i'm such a good person that that's what the do you believe in climate change question really is is i'm a good person are you a good person when someone asks do you believe in climate change it's i'm a smart person are you a smart person it has nothing to do with climate change really so it is it is classic what they call social signaling which is not just for people listening and for other people but for yourself right you are establishing in your own mind, if you're somebody who likes to go around asking this question about climate change, oh, I'm so smart, I'm so virtuous, I'm so good. Uh, but the leaking of this report before it's even out just shows what there's a desperation to this, right? Why not just wait? And the report will come out, and the people that go into hysterics about this will do so. And the rest of us who just want to be left alone by these, uh, by these you know, crazies it will hopefully try to ignore most of this although they obviously want to use the government as a tool to implement these uh, insane policies about how we combat this change uh, this climate change but in the report which i was able to skim through i have not read it entirely yet you know i i, I tell you this i do read the primary source material for whatever i talk about on the show as often as i can and a lot of other shows where i feel like i'm like did the host on tv radio you name it i'm like did the host even even attempt to read any of this or is it just the talking points and whatever the staff hands him or her and well you know listen to enough of this watch enough of it and you'll, you'll be able to make these determinations on your own if you're not already uh, but i can tell you there are a lot of them that i'm like when i talk to people offline who are in this business so so you don't actually so you don't actually read any of the stuff but you talk about it a lot anyway i didn't read the full report yet but i've read the executive summary and i've certainly read the and I'm talking more about the news story, though, which is that it was leaked. 
Why would it have to be leaked? Oh, that's right, because Trump is going to be some sort of anti-climate change fascist. Uh, the leak of the climate change study is indicative of that there's a real paranoia among climate change activists and the climate. The, you know, people say the scientific community, which is, is a bit like saying the political community or, you know, the arts community or something that covers a lot of ground. We're, we're really talking about when you're talking about this climate stuff, you're talking about a, a small subset of scientists. You know, no one's sitting around disputing climate science with people who are doing the very worthwhile and excellent work of research into microbiology and you know antibiotic resistance and cures for cancer and uh, you know m making better cleaning solvents for your home you know whatever right science science uh, no, that's that's not what this is what people would say the scientists and the scientific consensus well there's climate science and you always have to factor into that that these people are either trying to save the planet and therefore need all of the grants and the approbation, the applause, the love that comes with being like the, the saviors of the planet. You know, they're on a crusade. <gasps> they're on a jihad. <gasps> they're on a, I don't know, a, a, a mission from, from Gaia, from Mother Earth, to save the planet. And... We're, we should not be surprised, therefore, when we don't hear a lot of, yeah, actually, it's not that big a deal from them, right? We all, we all understand that. I mean, th that should be motive matters. I always tell you, look for the motive. The motive explains so much of what's going on in, in our day-to-day our -day lives. And if you were looking at this from a criminal perspective, not that it is, but there is a clear motive for a massive fraud to be perpetuated uh, by, against the American people by the climate research community, because if it's not a big deal, well, what exactly are they doing all day? You know, telling us what the temperature is? I got an app for that. You know, I don't really need you. So that matters. That that has to be taken into account here. But there is this paranoia, as I said. There's even been fake news about fears that the administration will try and uh, destroy data on club, which is just nonsense, right? They can't stop her. If there's a government report that's not classified, people aren't going to go to prison for releasing it, that the, that the administration tried to suppress, of course somebody could, could leak. But this is a preemptive leak. See, they don't even wait for the administration to try and suppress the information because they want the news story to be, oh, we were so worried about them suppressing it, so we had to leak it first. Oh, well, that's, you know, this is like somebody walking down the street and they're like, they punch me in the face. And when they have to explain why, it's like, well, I was so worried that Buck was going to hit me that I had to hit him first because he's such a bad guy. Well, was I going to hit him? I mean, you know, probably not. So uh, we, we should also, though, note that the, the Daily Mail reports here that the U.S. Department of Agriculture has told staff to not use the term climate change and replace it with weather extremes. Now, you know, that's that is a change. Uh, I think this is interesting because it is a recognition, uh, a recognition that the language that we use in these debates and these discussions is absolutely critical, is absolutely uh, essential. And so by controlling the language or by changing the language, you de facto change and direct the debate in one way or another. And that's why calling it a weather extreme is going to infuriate. This, look at look at what happens when you say illegal alien, the official legal term. No, no, say undocumented immigrant. You know, 
undocumented immigrant, it, it, you might as well be calling. You know, it might be might as well be a, a debate over like, do you like you know, do you like fluffy puppies? Who doesn't like fluffy puppies, right? I mean, oh, of course, undocumented immigrants. Don't you like immigrants? And they're just they just need their papers. Just give them some papers, and they're immigrants. We're good, right? It's all very clear. It is it is a game, but the stakes are quite high, and controlling the language is a necessary uh, or a very useful, at least, component of of how this all goes. So um, they are they are changing the way the, the government talks about these things, to be sure. Um, but that does not mean that they're trying to suppress this information. Uh, maybe it'll do more. I mean, we've got Al Gore's movies out. It's bombing, by the way. We've got Al Gore's movie is out, The Inconvenient Truth Part 2, um, you know, in, Inconvenient Nonsense. Uh, perhaps more time on that tomorrow and on climate change. I, I don't know. Part of this is that I think that the people who, who already know that this is a, a a not necessarily an entirely a hoax, but a hysteria, right? Yeah, the climate change is real. The climate's changing. It's probably getting warmer. Fine. Do we need to be worried about it? Do we need to make drastic government policy to address it? Are people that have questions about this uh, imbeciles? No, 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 and no, right? No, no's all across the board. But People who already know that, I think, don't necessarily get too interested, too fascinated by um, what's going on there. So, uh, I, you know, I, I'm, I've realized today that I'm not even going to get through all the topics that I said at the start of the show I'm going to because there's just I got a, a lot on, on the mind today, a lot that I want to share with you. Um, so let me say that this is so I don't entirely skip over the topic. I want to talk about opioid abuse. and Then we have to move on to the Google memo. And this is kind of a placeholder for a longer more in-depth conversation about the opioid. And I, I know I'm switching topics also mid-segment, uh, mid which I tend not to do, but uh, today I just got so much on the docket that I'm, I'm going to go from one to the other. Um, opioid abuse. President Trump spoke about it today. Let's just, as, as a way of getting into this for just a couple of minutes, here's what the president said. The best way to prevent drug addiction and overdose is to prevent people from abusing drugs in the first place. If they don't start, they won't have a problem. If they do start, it's awfully tough to get off. So we can keep them from going on, and maybe by talking to youth and telling them no good, really bad for you in every way. But if they don't start, it will never be a problem. Now, we have talked here on the show, and we've had experts on to address it, uh, about the actual chemistry involved here and what's happening um, with the, the kinds of drugs that people are overdosing on. We say opioid, and it's often thought that we're talking about heroin, and heroin certainly is playing a part in this, and the Mexican drug cartels are more involved with heroin now as a result and have been for years. Um, you know, the, the drugs, though, are really chemical compounds. That's what we're worried about, things like fentanyl and derivatives of uh, of or similar compounds that are chemical compounds that are similar in structure to fentanyl that work on the receptors, the brain receptors in a way that's similar to what you get with um, opium. And so this is why people call them opioids. And fentanyl, as you know, is so is so dangerous. And we've talked about this here before that even just touching it, if it gets absorbed in your skin, you can overdose. So there's a chemical component of this that just makes this inherently more uh, more dangerous, right? And and I think one of the failures of the war on drugs is that if it's a Schedule One Controlled Substances Act drug, people think of it as being similar. But 
There is no reasonable basis to say, for example, that smoking marijuana is one time as dangerous as taking heroin one time, right? That's that's an unreasonable, unscientific, non-factual statement. But yet all these drugs have been kind of treated by the federal government as in a similar vein of dangerousness, and that's just not true. Uh, these drugs now, these opioid drugs, are much more potent and much more deadly. So that's a part of it. Um, the Also, the, sc- the scale of the problem, just to touch on that, is you now have more people dying in this country from opioid overdose than murders and car crashes combined. So it is an, epi- it is an epidemic and it is a crisis. So those two things. So the chemicals are different and deadlier. And it is an epidemic. It is of proportions that are different from anything else we've seen in certainly in decades when it comes to the problem of of drugs and drug use in this country. But I also, you know, the the how we fix it is a very important discussion. I'll try to do some of that here. But how we fix it is um, one thing. I also wonder if there are some other factors that don't get as much attention, that people don't spend as much time thinking about, which is, why is this happening? Um, and and, I, and this, is, this is not based on any expertise that I have or, or, or even much more than uh, preliminary research, but there is something happening in this country right now. There is a, a sense of disconnected—people uh, are disconnected and a disaffection in a lot of— uh, predominantly white, but not entirely, uh, suburban and rural communities. And you know, there's a breakdown in civil society that has been happening, and people feel really alone, and they're they're in pain. They're in psychological pain, and they're trying to self-medicate. And that's a, I think that's a, a very widespread uh, condition right now. And if we're going to diagnose the problem accurately, I think we have to keep in mind that something has happened in this country where people are looking for escape and are trying to deal with pain, emotional, psychological, and physical pain in in ways that, uh, well, they're responsive to a, a, a crisis that is worthy of uh, a much greater attention than I think we give it as a society. And that is what is happening. Why are, why are people feeling this way? Uh, where is this pain coming from that they're trying to medicate with these drugs? And I can mean emotional, psychological pain, too. And we'll talk more about the war on drugs aspect of this also on, a, on another segment of the show. But I'm just I'm trying to wrap my head around why we're in this place with the opioid epidemic. And it'll be an ongoing conversation. Uh, but I, Google memo. Got to talk about you got to talk about that uh, and what this tells us about the progressive left and, and corporate culture in America and. A whole bunch of stuff. This will be uh, this will be an interesting discussion. We're gonna hit it. Ideological echo chamber is the name of the ten-page memo that has rocked Silicon Valley and set off a really uh, spirited. That's one way to put it. Discussion across the country about what men and women do in the workplace. Are there any differences between what they choose to do in the workplace? And this cult of diversity, which is not even really easy for the left and the progressives to define what really is diverse. It's it's ethnic. It's it's racial. It's gender. It's gender identity. It's international. It's I mean, you know, keep expanding and expanding. It's immigrant. It's OK. Well, how many more layers do you add on to what is considered diversity? It's not ideological, though. So you want a lot of different people who all think the same thing. 
how that brings benefits into a corporate culture is beyond me, right? It means that a room full of people will look a certain way. It'll look like there's a lot of difference, but it's superficial difference. So why would that matter to the way a business operates if everyone has to think the same way and think the same things? If we are, especially in an information-based economy, especially at a place like Google that is a world thought leader, isn't a diversity of thought going to be an, an essential part of that process? Well, of course, the answer is no. In fact, there's really a, a Stalinist suppression of diversity of thought inside of Google. Hence, this brilliant Ph.D. from Harvard, Mr. Damore, uh, wrote Google's ideological echo chamber, and I read through it, the entire thing. You should absolutely read it when you get a chance. And he talks about how this, well, first of all, the whole culture at Google is in, in a, an echo chamber. It, it is a groupthink uh, on pain of firing environment about all things, politics, treatment of people in the workplace, everything. You ha You have to buy into the approved leftist orthodoxy and that there are major biases at work in the way that Google operates in its day to day and they all skew left. And one of these ways has to do with diversity and the the gap, the uh, gap between men and women in engineering and leadership positions in Silicon Valley. Uh, man, man, I talked to you a little bit on the show about this. Here's what's so fascinating about it. And he goes into also, I should note, a whole section on how to get more women. People are calling this an anti-diversity memo, but there's a, they, there's a whole part of it that says, quote, increase women's representation in tech. I mean, the guy even comes up with solutions, but it's in his diagnosis of the problem that he engages in heresy. He has violated the sacred tenets of the progressive multiculturalist left with this memo. By saying, get ready for it, it's crazy, hold on to your seats, here it comes. Men and women are different and may want somewhat different things in their career paths, may choose different fields. Now, this is where the reactionary left kicks in and says, hold on a second, are you saying that, you know, women can't do math or women can't do computer stuff? No, that's not what he is saying. In fact, what there is plenty of social science evidence to point to is that women make different choices and that in aggregate, or as he says in his, in his writing, that this guy Damore in Google's ideological echo chamber, in the aggregate, uh, women tend to have personality traits and views of what they would like to do with their time that... Again, on the average, not every individual, but push them more towards some fields than others. And so this gets shouted down as, oh, you're saying women can't do math and can't do computers. It's not true. But when you actually look at different, prof different professions, you can get much closer to what the truth is and women's representation in those professions. For example, and here's some, here's some fun facts for you to, to chew on when we're talking about all this. Women and men are represented in about equal numbers in mathematics when it comes to college major studies. Um, but in engineering, that is not the case. Engineering is dominated by men. So it's not a mathematical ability issue, right? There are men and women do math at the, in the same numbers in graduate programs, and 
Ah, but what does one do with a graduate degree in mathematics? Tends to teach more math. Teaching, then, is the profession that a lot of women who have higher degrees in mathematics go into. Men who are mathematically inclined may go into electrical, chemical, engineering, mechanical engineering, and coding, software coding, Silicon Valley stuff, right? So that's just that's just one example. But see, it's not that women can't do math. And by the way, I'm a guy who's not very good at math. I was good at other things, but math was not my thing. So, you know, I, I, far be it for me to try to make some sort of uh, argument about male and women, uh, men and women's mathematical ability, you know? You know Miss Molly's better at math than I am. When I need to do a calculation, I'm like, hey, honey, can you, you know, she's really good at that stuff. I'm, I'm okay. I'm not great at math. So... But then this this turns into a, well, there's an old boys club at work in Silicon Valley. It's not just that women aren't choosing uh, software engineering and, and coding and tech as their profession. It's that men are keeping them out because they're high status professions with high pay. OK, well, someone explain to me if there is this uh, this male Illuminati, you know, this secret international brotherhood of bros that's preventing women from succeeding in technology careers to the same member. There are women in tech, Marissa Mayer, wildly overpaid CEO of Yahoo. I mean, of course, right? Ariana Huffington, darling, I'm the best CEO ever. I'm taking over Uber now. You know, there are plenty of women in, in tech, but the, the representation, the numbers are not the same. They say there's a gap, right? It's a difference between men and women. It's not that there aren't women, and no one says there aren't or shouldn't be women. But we get into the theory that it's because men are uh, suppressing women, men won't let women work in these fields, and the numbers bear that out in technology and in engineering and in Silicon Valley, which is now the most lucrative and powerful sector, really, of the U.S. economy in a lot of ways. So that's why it's getting a lot of attention. That's why this Google memo gets a lot of attention. But let's test this theory. Let's test out the question next. Are women kept from high-paying jobs in technology and from leading these companies because they're women or because of something else? Mark in Florida on WFLA. What's up, Mark? Outstanding. Thank you for taking my call again, and uh, thank you for your service. I didn't get to thank you last time. But uh, anyway, I just want to throw something out there for you and, and all the listeners to chew on. Um, I'm gonna, I've been listening to you because cable is horrible. So I listen to uh, radio a lot, and I, my quality of life has improved enormously. You're, anyway, you're a smart man. It's a good choice. You learn a lot more from this show than you are from watching TV. I can promise you that. Hey, I know it, brother. But uh, anyway, I know your time is valuable, so I'll make it quick here. Uh, I'm going to go over four, four things that you went over. One of them will not be in order, but one of them was your North Korean propaganda inside and outside and what they're trying to tell their people and the rest of the world. And it's just, in short, crazy. Second segment was the New York Times leak, which is a non-leak. You know, I know. I was about and, uh, to say. I just my producer just told me the report's been out there for months, but that it was reported as leaked, but it's already out. Oh yeah, everybody's every correct. Yes, and just on a side note of that, the, the big gray lady, as they call it, kind of looks like the same Soviet cement-style buildings in uh, North Korea, but that's a sidebar. But anyway, so we got the, the propaganda in North Korea, which is horrible, and we got the New York Times, which is just what it is and uh then you just talked about this google memo this guy this guy's my hero and boy is he in for it and i can just imagine you know we all know what he's going through right now uh it's 
it's lunacy, frankly, because it's truth. We are different, and we're that's what makes us great. But if you were to say it, you're going to get in trouble, which he has. So my point is the fourth segment that I mentioned out of order is the opioid uh, problem. You said – you talked about why is it? Why are people trying to escape, you know? I think it's obvious. Look at the world we live in. We're just surrounded by by uh, reasons to make people want to escape. So anyway, think about that. Thanks for having I me will. on. I'll, I'll hang up and listen for your response. Shield time, Mark. Thank you, sir. You know, on the on the opioid uh, epidemic, I, I do think I think that the I think that we have a lot of people who are um, because of the constant presence of. I don't mean to beat up on just social media, but just our ability now with screens everywhere, we connect without really connecting. And we see a a curated and edited view of the world around us. And, and I don't mean the world around us like what's going on in in North Korea and in and Iran and Zimbabwe and, and, you know, Germany or whatever. I mean what our perceptions are of of the people in our society here in America, who's successful, what everyone else looks like, how much fun they're having. And so we, we see this and, you know, what you don't see are the struggles and what you don't have are the real connections that come from dealing with and interacting with actual human beings and helping them and showing them kindness and laughing at their jokes or telling them jokes that they laugh at. And, you know, social media isn't a proxy for those things. And, you know, look, I also, I also think there's an argument to be made for lack of, uh, particularly with, with my generation and those about 10 years older than me, lack of uh, church attendance, lack of connection to community. Um, those who, you know, haven't started families or have families where they feel like they're not able to provide the way they want to. I mean, there's there's a lot. There's a lot of dysfunction out there and the people are there in pain and they're worried. And I understand. Um I understand that. So anyway, that's more. I'll, I'll get into more on the opioids. That, that's going to be an ongoing conversation. I, I'm really, uh, I mean, it's terrible, but I, I'm also deeply interested in trying to get to the why. Why are people doing this? It's changed. Something is different now. Um, but all right. So I, I I had about an hour's worth of Google memo stuff to talk to you about. I just wanted to say this uh, because I could talk to you about this forever. And, and, and well, not forever, but there's a lot more. Maybe I'll re- revisit it tomorrow because I've got... Sean Davis joining, and then I got some some closing thoughts to share with you on the show. Sean will do a great job talking to us about the the Google memo, the anti diversity screed, as it was called on the Gizmodo website that I saw it on at first. So the storyline you'll hear from the feminists and the left is that men oppress women and keep them out of top positions and engineering positions. But then you'd have to ask the question: if you want to take this theory as serious. Because I already said to you, math ability, we've already we've established that there's not there's no differential between math ability with men and women, even in the aggregate. There's there's no noticeable differential. And then they do these personality trait analyses. And some will say, well, you know, that doesn't show anything either because men and women are, are the same and 90 percent of personality traits. Well, if 10 percent of those personality traits are things like aggressiveness and assertiveness, those can be really big differences in, in the workplace and how that all uh, how that shows up when you're talking about large populations of millions of people, even a relatively small difference can have a really noticeable impact. Okay. But more to the point about this keeping women out of these professions, because this is the story. This is the, this is the lie. This is the line. Uh, 
why can't they keep them out of being veterinary, uh, being uh, vets, veterinarians? Why can't they keep them out of biology? Why can't they keep them out of pedi- uh, pediatrics? These are all fields that are lucrative, well-paid, that women dominate in, in terms of the percentages. Maybe it's just a question of choices, of women making different choices about the fields they want to go into. Isn't that a crazy idea? We're talking to Sean Davis now about all these things. He is co-founder of The Federalist. You can read his latest on thefederalist.com, the Google diversity memo that everyone is freaking out about. Well, let's talk about it. Sean, great to have you. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, first off, can, can we just give me a, a, a snapshot, Sean Davis style, of how much disinformation there is out there about this memo? I, I feel like at some point, maybe CNN should actually have somebody read the memo if they're going to write about the memo. Yeah, that's a shocking, uh, shocking thing to uh, to offer that maybe reporters should read things before commenting on them. So I guess my one sentence uh, characterization of the whole debate is that pretty much everyone in media is lying about what this Google scientist said, and they're lying about it in a very predictable way, namely that which uh, comforts the left and attacks the right. Yeah, they're saying that this guy who has... I didn't know this at the time. It just came out today. Uh, has a Ph.D. in biology from Harvard, as I understand it. So one would think somewhat qualified to comment on scientific matters and the sociobiological discussions about different fields and whether they appeal more to men or women. But it's being reported as this guy said women can't do math and engineering. That's not what he said at all. All right, Brooke Baldwin went on CNN. Now, this is a CNN anchor. This isn't some chucklehead that's just brought on. It's like a, a rando uh, to do commentary for a minute <laughs> as I pull my uh, collar to the right nervously. Yeah, me, me uh, too. I'm like, who does that? Who goes on TV with their just <laughs> spouting off crazy people? But yeah, no, this, this is an anchor for CNN and said, oh, yeah, the memo essentially said that, that women couldn't be near computers. Uh No, it didn't. Um, And if that kind of screed uh, does anything, uh, it tells me that maybe Brooke Baldwin doesn't know how to get to uh, a a computer to to read an actual memo. Because that's not what the memo said at all. Actually, what it said was, you know what, Google has some ideological diversity problems, which leads to it being an ideological echo chamber. And because of its uh, echo chamber nature, Google does things that might not actually be helping the people it wants to help. And therefore, here are some ways we can do the things that we all agree we want to do uh, uh, without having to discriminate against them. That was the essence of the entire memo, and people lost their minds over it. And you have uh, NPR. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, Sean. NPR reporting that women who work for Google were staying home because they were so upset by the existence of this anti-diversity memo, as it's being called, which I have to say is a pretty weird way to protest a memo that you think is saying that women are emotional and not involved in engineering because of their biological predisposition. Uh, It's a strange thing to say, well, I'm just going to stay home because I'm so upset now. (laughs) I don't think that's a good way to protest this. Oh, no, it was amazing. So, so what the, uh, the author did in his memo, uh, which, again, the point of which was to uh, find ways— James uh, Damore, by the way, or Damore. I don't know how we say it, but that's the name of the, uh, the author. Go ahead. Yeah, he wanted to find ways to make Google a better workplace for women and minorities. And so on the topic of the difference between the sexes, he said, you know what? Research shows that compared to, to men, 
women uh, tend to be more people-based, more relationship-based, where men are more thing-based. Women tend to be more anxious about things than men do, and uh, women tend to focus more on work-life balance, whereas men tend to focus more on status. So here are some things that Google can do to make uh, Google a better place for people with those priorities to work in. And so their response to being told that, you know, uh, women tend to be prone to anxiety more than men is they decide that they've been triggered and can't come to work because somebody said something in a memo. I mean, everything that has happened here, uh, it's almost like Google is trying to confirm and affirm every single criticism that was levied against it in that memorandum. And I think it's fascinating that there are just some some logical or, or, or fallacies of logic here, or, or, or they fall into all kinds of uh, self-contradiction. I mean, there are these programs, and he talks about this in, in the memo, this 10-page long memo, which I do recommend everybody read, by the way. Uh, he, he goes into how there are certain classes and, and, and positions that are only open to women as a, as a means of trying to get more women involved in the workplace because that is greater, quote, diversity, which will be better for the company. But then to discuss what diversity really means, is that diversity and how are people different is to somehow transgress and be some evil Neanderthal, right? I mean, on the one hand, they're saying more women because women are different makes things better. And then on the other hand, it's, well, if women are different, how are they different? How dare you say women are different? It doesn't make any sense. No, it's madness. On one end, you have people uh, demanding, well, we must have paid maternity leave for, for this amount of time. And then on the other hand, they're saying, oh, well, no, no, but men and women are not different physically, emotionally uh, at all. Well, pick one. Like, you can't have both of them. Even, even either we are different, and, you know, maybe those differences should be celebrated. Maybe they're good things. Maybe we should find ways to use people with unique strengths. Um, all across the company. Uh, but no, they go in and they assume that any discussion about differences is negative and then attack anyone who has the audacity to say, you know what, people are different and um, they value different things. So let's find ways to make all those different people comfortable. That, that's the whole point of the memo. And the fact of the matter is the guy called out uh, what appears to be some illegal discriminatory uh, activity going on at Google. Uh, I read in the New York Times, so huge caveat there. It may not even be true that he had filed an official complaint with the National Labor Relations Board about illegal discriminatory, discriminatory practices going on there. So for all we know, he may, be end, up, may end up getting a big, fat settlement um, as a result of the retaliation that he suffered uh, for whistleblowing against Google's potentially illegal discrimination practice. Yeah, this guy, and by the way, we're speaking to Sean Davis, who's co-founder of The Federalist, and he's got some great stuff up on thefederalist.com right now about the Google anti-diversity memo, which I don't even, that's not a proper description of it, but that's how it's being described. And so if you're kind of trying to find it online, that may be one way to go here. But Sean, this guy is very, this individual who wrote this memo, James uh, James Damore, is really savvy, uh, clearly knew that there would be a tremendous amount of backlash to this. It seems like he'd been preparing for that possibility. And I think that this is coming at a particularly uh, opportune time when it comes to the progressive tyranny in workplaces, on college campuses. You know, the Trump administration is going to be looking at discriminatory practices in 
admissions on college campuses, that will immediately, I think, or, or very soon thereafter, also lead to discriminatory practices in the workplace where the left will be forced to justify what it has been doing for a long time, which is picking and choosing who gets extra benefits and who doesn't, which is discrimination. Even if it's, even if it's in favor of women in the workplace, they are, in fact, discriminating in favor of roughly 50 percent of the population. Yeah, this, this everything that's happening now is is like the uh, the unholy love child of Orwell and Kafka. Okay, so you know, for a long time we were told, oh, corporations don't have rights, they don't have speech rights, they don't have conscience rights. And by the way, bake that cake, bigot. Uh, we went from that to suddenly, oh well, you know, Google has the freedom to police its own ranks, and if somebody says something they don't agree with, well, surely free market capitalists can come on and say. Attaboy, Google, you're allowed to employ whomever you want. Okay, these little tin pot fascists on the left, they need to pick one set of rules and stick with it and apply the same rules to themselves as they apply to the rest of us, because I'm getting pretty dang sick of the double standard. Yeah, how is it that on the one hand, they can tell you who you can and cannot hire based upon pretty arbitrary group protections decided upon by the progressive left, and then on the other, you've got some of the same people, you know, from the the HuffPost, Young Turks, Slate.com side of the political spectrum, who seem to think, well, yeah, of course you can get fired for being a conservative. Well, well, well hold on a second. Why is that okay? Yep. Pick one. I mean, it's the inanity of it all. And, and let's not uh, forget that, that Google's whole shtick, its motto for a while, was don't be evil. Now, this is the same corporation that very willingly and eagerly, eagerly went and censored search results in China uh, so that they could stay in the good graces of the, of the communist government there that oppresses its people. I mean, Google went out of its way to censor information for an evil communist regime uh, that takes great pleasure in oppressing and repressing its own people. And they want us to believe that they're just trying to stand up for common decency and morality. It's a complete joke. And I have to say, yesterday I was on the show and I was talking about this memo just as it was starting to get really going, a lot of attention. And I said, I think this guy's going to get fired. And I, people were like, oh, no, they Google wouldn't be so foolish and so obvious as to fire a guy who writes a very well thought out, I think very compelling in parts, if not in a whole, argument about what's going on with – it's not just about men and women at Google and engineering. It's about the groupthink. It's about uh, bias. It's about refusing to allow for alternative viewpoints in a corporate culture that's supposed to be all about ideas. And that's all swept to the side, and it's this guy wants women you know, wearing aprons and cooking like we're back in the 50s. Uh, it's a complete smear, but I think, Sean, that, that the sloppiness of the smear, and this goes back to how we started the conversation with the way the media is talking about this and portraying it, I think that's indicative of the fact that they don't really want to have this argument on the merits because they'll lose. Because there is data, and the data doesn't show what they want it to show, which is that men are oppressing women, and men are, you know, most men I know, by the way, quite quite fond of women in the workplace and otherwise. You know, this notion that men don't like women that feminists have latched onto for decades is just really a fantasy. Well, it, it's it's a, a piece of with this silly uh, fake stat that uh, women only make 77% of what men make for the same job. Okay, well, I'm a capitalist, and if that were actually true, I would only hire women because I would be getting the exact same thing with the exact same experience uh, for 23% less. And, and the fact of the matter is it's just a lie. And if I have to quibble with one thing you said, um, you said they don't want to argue this issue on the merits. They don't want to argue 
any issue on the merits. They lie and misrepresent and obfuscate everything. They do it on guns. They do it on taxes. They do it on foreign policy. This is no different. So, I mean, I'm surprised, but I shouldn't be when Google, after reading a memo called Google's Ideological Echo Chamber, goes and fires the guy for it. This is not an aberration for the left. This is who the left is. This is what they do. Uh, as John Gabriel has said, you know, the left won the culture war, and now it's just roaming the countryside looking for survivors to shoot. This is part of that. They want to root out everyone guilty of wrong thing and persecute them. It's as simple as that. Sean Davis, everybody. He is co-founder of The Federalist. He does great stuff there. And if you're on Twitter, highly recommend you follow Sean at S-E-A-N-M-D-A-V, at Sean M-D-A-V. Sean, thanks for making the time for us. I know you're busy this week. Come back soon. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Buck. What are the scams that you have to be on the lookout for these days? Uh, something that all of us have to deal with, especially in the digital, global, Internet economy. Uh, you are subjected to all kinds of pitfalls, all sorts of problems. Uh, but some of them also are pretty old school. Some of the things you have to be on the lookout for when it comes to people who are trying to get into your pocket and take your cash or worse in some cases. Uh, there's this piece out in Market Watch uh, that I thought was really interesting. It had to do with the areas of greatest consumer complaint. I mean, with 200,000 consumer complaints that they went through in 2016, what are the things that you got to be on guard against? Now, let me say, first of all, um, the, you, I'm sure you could guess some of them. Uh, I'll give you the, the, full, the full list, and it's uh, auto... Home improvement, construction, utilities, retail sales, credit, debt, services, health products, landlord, tenant, internet sales, home solicitation. Now, I went through that list pretty quickly. Some of you are probably like, Buck, slow down. Because, yeah, of course, those are all the areas. Those are the areas where people might try to scam you, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty hard for your grocery store to scam you because uh, there's so, so much competition and the items are relatively low priced. And, you know, if someone tries to sell you a gallon of milk for $30, I mean, unless it's like organic, sustainable milk, like the special cows named like a cow named like Harold and Harold the cow is like massaged and like gets plenty of elliptical exercise and he's the best milk. I mean, yeah, sure. There are there's like raw milk out there and there's really fancy milk. Anyway, $30 milk. You're, most of you are going to be like, I don't think so. Um, but here are places where it is easy to get scammed and, and one of them came up recently uh they they say fraud and that's of course the biggest consumer complaint still and a lot of that is internet based uh, but one thing to be on the lookout for i came up against this uh when i was trying to sell some furniture when i moved you know i, I figure how hard is this right cash and carry you know i'll give you my dresser you give me 50 bucks by the way i turned out i couldn't even get 50 furniture in new york city old wooden furniture has almost uh, no value on the open market. It's very hard to find anybody, um, uh, anybody who will, you know, come and take away your furniture and, and pay you money for it. So uh, anyway, I, I think uh, uh, that's that's one aspect of all this. But I, I thought it'd be easy trying to get people to pay me for my things. And what you find out is that scamsters immediately jump on this uh, as an opportunity. And what they do is they uh, either try to give you a check or a money order and then they get your stuff and they'll even hire a truck to go all around the city and they'll get all this stuff and they'll have 
the uh, I suppose the driver, maybe the driver's in on it, maybe is not, give people these money orders or these checks, and it takes you know a week or two for the check to clear. And when the money's not in the account, the person's long gone. This is a very old scam, but it still works incredibly well because these guys have stories, and stories are very powerful, right? Stories play on human emotion, and so they'll say, "Oh, that dresser looks like one that you know my aunt Ethel gave me," and you know I'll pay you, I'll pay you full price, and I'll pay you a thirty-dollar convenience fee, and I'll write you a check, and I'll I'll pick it up tomorrow. You go through all this, and, and it's all a fraud. And I had people try to do that. To me, even with the few items that I was trying to sell. So that's one commonplace uh, fraud. Anytime you're selling anything online, you got to be super careful. And obviously, you don't give anybody your credentials, your passwords, any of that stuff ever, ever, ever. That's a big one, too. Okay. But the other two areas that I thought were interesting, these were, well, one of them is kind of a new variation on a little one. And that is used car leases. Again, this is from this Market Watch report on the biggest consumer complaints, basically places where you can get scammed. I'm trying to talk to you about what you got to be on the lookout for because I, well, I knew it was a scam and didn't fall for it, but, you know, someone tried to scam me when I was moving, right? I had a few people try to scam me. So uh, here's what you got to keep an eye out for with used car leasing. Now, you lease a used car because the biggest upfront cost in a car that you're going to pay with a lease is the depreciation of the vehicle. And depreciation in the first two years is the steepest. So if you get a car, a used car, or pre-owned, as the term of art is, pre-owned vehicle, sir. Do you have your pre-owned vehicle and your gray poupon? Uh, if you do go the pre-owned route, though, a lot of that depreciation has already been factored into what the previous owner either, well, usually paid in lease payments, but maybe if they owned it, owned it and, and turned it in. Uh, so you're going to get a pretty good deal. The problem is that, first of all, They've been going after, and I know about this from some of the finance guys that I do a, a side project with, um, that a lot of the subprime borrowers in the auto market, they've, they've really tapped out on that. And they've been going after pretty, uh, un, you know, pretty bad uh, credit risks to give them auto loans. This has been a big thing. And there's some major financial institutions that have put out a ton of auto loans, including subprime, really bad risk auto loans out there. Uh, and there's just there's just too many. There are honestly just too many cars and pe cars are lasting longer, need fewer repairs. People are happier with the car they have. They don't need to. And the, the cost of a new car now, uh, the average cost of a new car is over thirty thousand dollars, which is amazingly high to me. So they're they're trying to find ways to extract more and the used car sales game for uh, for you or used car lease game involves a lot of. Uh, got to read. Got to read below the. You know, read the fine print. Read below the dotted line. There's a lot of ways that they try to sneak in additional payments, jack up the percentage rate on you, and it's just becoming and because the margins are getting tighter, it's becoming a slimier, uh, slimier segment of the auto uh, business, the auto leasing business. So keep an eye out if you're going to be leasing a used car. Just be very careful with the terms. And also understand that there are some other things you want to keep in mind, like uh, get a warranty and make sure it's in writing. Um, uh, you know, one mistake that I made when I leased a used car years ago was I didn't take a record of all the pre-existing damage. And then when I turned it in at the end of my lease for that used car, they tried to charge me for the damage. And that was quite 
a fight that I had with the, with the uh, the dealer over that. So you got to keep an eye on that. But here's one that I I didn't see coming: solar panel sales and installation in this Market Watch report. Uh, they're saying that this is in- increasingly a problem that revolves around uh, bad installation. Uh, that's one of the big things noted in the survey, and contract terms that are misleading. They they wrote that. An 84-year, this is a quote from the piece, an 84-year-old man persuaded to sign a 20-year lease that would obligate his heirs if he dies or buyers if he decides to sell his home to maintain his solar panels. So think about that. If you get solar panels installed, there's all kinds of regulations. And sure, there are some financial incentives, some tax incentives for solar panels. But if as part of the installation process, you have to create obligations that will extend even beyond your ownership of that home, you may really want to think twice about that one. Um, and, you know, solar panels. You, oh, you also want to make sure you understand the financing very well. Um, and installation of solar panels is often shoddy. I, I, a lot of you are probably like, I don't have solar panels. Who cares? But that's, that's an area where there's a lot of increasing complaints. And then just back to the original. So you had fraud. Used car leases, solar panel installation, and financial terms. These are all the areas where there's just been a big explosion of consumer complaints. And fraud is mostly Internet stuff. So I was telling you about uh, the scams where people offer to give you a check or a money order. You know, just anything that you're do- any transaction you're doing off the Internet, unless there's a trusted third party like a PayPal or something in the middle, y- you really want to do cash. I mean, you do not accept checks. You do not accept money orders off the internet. It's a really old scam. And it's been running, unfortunately, effectively for years. That's that's what people do. They just give you a bad check and, you know, you don't know. And often, I mean, look, if you're selling, you know, an old piece of porcelain for 50 bucks or you probably, it's not the end of the world either way. So the much bigger issue still is just people posing as government officials and emails to get your information, posing as the IRS to get your information, um, posing as the IT person from your company Uh, Hackers are very smart. They have access to LinkedIn and Google and all the rest of it. They may be able to pinpoint a list of people at a company and then create an email that looks like your IT person. So you just you never give uh, passwords. You never give any of that stuff to an unsolicited email. And even at small companies, I mean, if you own the local auto body shop, if you if you are a part owner of a trucking company, if you are, uh, you know, a, a farmer and you just have interactions with, you know, the guy who's helping you with accounting for your farm, anyone, anyone can be targeted by these frauds and scams. So I just, I, I, and I was targeted myself recently. So I wanted to share that info with you. I'm going to talk to you about my first interaction with the Department of Environmental Protection. Oh, so I moved into a new place recently, team, and it's great. I'm, I'm loving it. And in fact, I have a little bit of uh, outdoor space here in New York City, which is a prized thing. Many of you who are sitting right now listening to me, maybe you're in your car on your way home, but you've got acres. In New York, you measure outdoor space uh, by the by the square foot and, and really by the square inch. I mean, if you've got a tiny little terrace that you can step out on and get some fresh air, that's that's pretty cool. Maybe the air is not so fresh, as I'm sure many of you would point out. But, you know, at least you get something. You know, you can get a little bit of a, of a breeze going. Um, and it's not quite as sexy as having a washer dryer, which here in New York City is a is a status symbol. Although I've also been told recently by friends 
that the real status symbol in New York City now for a lot of folks is, is how many kids do you have and if, if you stay in the city because children are so expensive that now it's become showy if you have more than one kid. I think that's pretty funny. My parents had four kids. I'm one of four here in the city. And yeah, I shared a room with my brothers growing up. We had a bunk bed and trundle bed. What's up? Bunk bed, trundle bed. It was amazing. I was on the uh, middle bunk, the bottom bunk of the bunk bed. My little brother was on the trundle, which is like a bed that pulls out from beneath the bed. And my older brother was, of course, top bunk. And yeah, three of us shared a room. Uh, the three of us, all all boys, all together in one room. And uh, we are very tight to this day, probably because we had to live in such confined quarters for years. Uh, and, and later on in my career, when I had to spend some time in various barracks and training programs and was sleeping on uh, on narrower but still bunk beds, uh, I have to say that it, it took me back to my childhood. I was like, oh, this is great. This is, you know, no problem at all. Anyway, uh, so I moved in this new place. I've got some outdoor space and I have had my first interaction ever with the Environmental Protection Agency. I, I know, right? Whatever I think of the EPA, I think of Ghostbusters and I'm Walter Peck. I'm hearing stories about an unlicensed disposal and storage unit. People say they're seeing ghosts. Uh, you know, from Ghostbusters, Walter Peck. That guy's great in that role, by the way. And that's also why my uh, thesis to this day is that Ghostbusters is, in fact, a conservative movie. You've got entrepreneurs, the Ghostbusters, small businessmen, the economic engine of America, Ghostbusters, who are trying to stand up to, yes, uh, beings from a, you know, beings from an alternate reality or, you know, the undead or whatever we, whatever the ghosts are they're dealing with. I guess they're the undead. Uh, but they also have to square off against the Environmental Protection Agency and Walter Peck. Uh, so it's small businessmen versus the EPA is really the story of, of the original Ghostbusters movie, which is still one of my favorite movies to this day. But I, I've never had any interaction with the EPA, mostly because I've never really lived in a place where you have an environment to speak of. I've lived in concrete jungles one after another, whether it's New York City or Washington, D.C., uh, but I, I, the EPA and I ha had our first chat because there is, when you're out on my little terrace area, there is a noise, a cycling, I think it's from an H HVAC, HVAC, or, but it's this high-pitched squealing that just never stops. And it's not so bad inside my apartment. And I know maybe I'm sounding a little, a little uh, bourgeois right now, a little bougie, as the kids say. But trust me, I'm not. All right. This is not a fancy setup. It's not a fancy apartment. But I do have to hear this very high pitched, constant whistling noise. And it's annoying. So I figure I pay all these city taxes. There's this 311 number you can call here in New York City to deal with these issues. And there's a noise complaint number usually reserved for when some maniacs are throwing a super loud party or something. But and I will say, I have never called 311 on a party. I am not a get-off-my-lawn kind of guy. Well, I am, but at least not about parties. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, acceptable. During the week, I mean, you know, we're not animals people, right? We have work, we have jobs, we have responsibilities. But on the weekends, I understand people need to party. Anyway, uh, EPA is, what, is the agency that gets contacted. Uh, and I guess it's the local... I think it's the local. I don't know. I just realized this. I don't even know if this is a federal government or if this is a city government thing. 
and I think it's environmental protection for the city of New York. Um, I'm pretty sure, but I don't know. I didn't see any badges or anything. So, but they, they come out and, and sure enough, I have my, my interaction with them and they basically show up and they're like, wow, that, that is kind of annoying. That noise. Uh, let's see if, let's see if we can find where it's coming from. And then they call me in a few, you know, they call me in about 10 minutes and there's two inspectors and then they say, yeah, we can't find the noise. It is really annoying though. So we think you should make another complaint. And I'm like, okay, so you're here. You are the noise complaint police, so to speak. And I'm telling you there's a noise and you agree that the noise is, they actually took a decibel reading and, and it's enough that it's actionable. So I, I'm not actually crazy here. The noise is, is real noise pollution. It's, it should, you know, it should go away or it should be made to be abated. Uh, and their response to me though is, well, you know, you got to just make another complaint. Maybe somebody else will come out here from our office and they'll be able to find it. And I get it. I suppose they're on the clock and they have a limited amount of time for each complaint, but I just think it's kind of funny. It's like, okay, so I, I, I didn't even think anybody would ever show up. I rarely, if ever, interact with government, and I really try to avoid interacting with government. I was worried that the EPA would come into my apartment and, you know, they would see that I had left too many dishes in the sink or something and try to declare my kitchen a, a wasteland or a wetland or something, and then I wouldn't be able to use it anymore. Or maybe maybe there's an endangered species of, of centipede that is uh, running around on my terrace. You know, I, I was a little worried. But they came here, and they, look, they were perfectly pleasant as government employees go uh, but I just think it's funny that they came here they agree there's a problem and their response is you know you should probably file another complaint about this problem that we were able to help you figure out as a problem I'm like well you know I was kind of hoping for a resolution of the problem uh, and they're like well we don't have time for that so you know it'll be probably another 10 days but just you know here we go this is what this is your tax dollars at work everybody whether it's you know federal or local I think it's local environmental protection but you get special taxes in New York City. You got to pay for to be a city resident. Uh, and so far, yeah, all the stuff I say about government and inefficiency, that's been the EPA or the Environmental Protection Department. Uh, that's that's been what's gone on here. You know, yeah, that's that's really a, that's really loud. That should stop. They need to whoever's creating that noise needs to stop that noise. But, you know, we can't do anything about it. So good luck. <laughs> that's, there you go. Government, baby. That's how they do. All right, go check out uh, bucksaxon.com slash store uh, whenever you get a chance. Got t-shirt there, hats up, much more gear coming in the months ahead. And uh, please do share it on social media. Um, write a review of the podcast, even if you're a live listener, if you don't mind. If you're an iTunes user, go into iTunes, Buck Sexton with America Now. Click on it and write a review. Big week coming to the news, my friends. We'll be tackling it together. Until then, shields high.